0: the people while he was living here on this earth. Questions like, but who do you say that I am? Do you want to be made well? What were you arguing about on the way? Jesus once asked, who is your neighbor? He answered that question. Then that powerful question to Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked that question. I want to start off this morning by going to the Gospel of John to examine another question that Jesus asked, John chapter 1 and verse 38, sermon entitled, You Are What You Love. John chapter 1 and verse 38. You're familiar with this question. You're familiar with a story. Jesus was just coming onto the scene. John the Baptist was still preaching powerfully and had disciples following him. And people started to hear about this Jesus person. And a couple of John's disciples were walking after Jesus. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, seeing them following, and said to them, What's the question there? What do you seek? What do you want? What are you looking for? And on one hand, it's a very simple question. Hey, what's up? What are you looking for? What do you want? What are you seeking? But when you think about it on the other hand, it's a very profound and a very deep question. Jesus wasn't just asking them, what's up guys? He was saying, are you wanting to become my disciple? Are you wanting to follow after me? Do you know what that involves? Are you ready to commit your entire life to becoming my disciples? What do you want? Simple question, but a powerful question. In fact, if Jesus were to say the same thing to you, if he were to turn to each one of you this morning and say, What do you want? What are you seeking? How would you respond to him? What would you say? Think about it for a moment and then just turn to the person next to you. If Jesus asked you this morning, What do you want? What would you say? Turn and share with the person next to you. A lot to think about. A lot of ways we could answer that question, huh? You know, a lot of people think, speaking of you are what you love, they say you are what you eat. And actually, Tristan demonstrated that really well this morning. That what we eat directly affects our body and who we become. You know, actually, I was watching a documentary and they said, basically, we're made of corn because corn syrup and corn is in almost everything if you have an allergy to corn you know about that you can't eat vitamins without reading the label because there's a good chance that corn is in there you can take snippets of your hair and they can find corn in your hair it's in your entire body so in one sense we really are what we eat but today we're talking about We're kind of following up on last week's sermon and the series that we just ended. Because last week we realized that if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to have to be someone who will be happy in heaven. Our hearts need to be at the place when we get to heaven, we're not saying, hey, where's the sin? I want to go sin. I, I miss my sin. If that's the condition of your heart, you won't be happy in heaven. And so we said, well, what can we do? And I said this week we're gonna start talking about that. Uh, so today, as we're talking about who we are and our identity and how Jesus changes us, it's all in that context and in that understanding because we want our hearts to feel at home when we get to heaven. Amen? So some people say, Well, who you are, that's that's what you eat. But of course we realize if we eat a lot of broccoli. Broccoli does not become our identity. It may make us healthier and we should eat it, but it's not who we really are. And other people say, or might be tempted to think, they're defined by what they know. Right? What they know. But mere knowledge is not a measure of who we are. A lot of people know if you eat fast food every day, it's going to probably shorten your life. Right? We know that. So knowledge is not... Enough to become our identity and become something that changes us. People read warning labels on products that they buy at the store. Things that say, this can cause cancer. This can kill you. We know these things. We hear a sermon. We read a verse in the Bible. And we become convicted. And we know what's right. But knowledge enough is not enough to change us. We need stronger motivations. Some would say, well, you are what you think. You are what you think. And to be honest, what we think really does define a lot of who we are. And if you're familiar with addiction recovery programs, sometimes they'll say, your very best thinking got you here. So our thoughts really impact who we are and where we end up in life. And that's probably why the the Bible is filled with cautions and important statements about what we should think about and how we should think. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we need to take every thought captive. Control our thoughts. Romans 12, 12 verse 12, two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our thoughts are very important, but I want to suggest this morning that there's an even deeper layer of who we are that we need to let Jesus have full control over. It's not just what we eat, what we know, what we think. God wants to get down to the heart of who we are, which I'm suggesting this morning, is our hearts itself. Not the the beating, pumping part, but our emotions, our loves, our longings, our desires. I want to put a quote here up on the screen. Antoine, and then some words that are hard to pronounce because I don't speak French. I could say it badly, but... This author, he wrote The, The Little Prince. Uh, Is it The Little Prince that he wrote? Let me check my notes. Yeah, The Little Prince. Have you heard of it? Okay, he wrote that book. He said this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you want to get something done, you could say, "Okay, we we need you to do this. We need you to do this. We need you to do this. But he said, it's much better, it's much more effective if you make their hearts long to be out on the ocean. You give them a picture of the high seas, the open seas, and they long for it so much that naturally, they just start getting the things together to build a ship. He realized the most effective way to produce change in a person is by changing someone's desires, what they really long for. So, this morning I'm suggesting that you are what you want. Your most fundamental identity, the most fundamental way that we are changed is by what we want, what we long for, what we love in life. Open up to Proverbs. We're going to see this very clearly. Proverbs chapter 4. Psalms, Proverbs, Proverbs 4 and verse 23. you get there say i'm there proverbs 4 verse 23 i'm reading here today from the new king james version and it says keep your heart keep your heart again we're talking about the seat of your emotions your desires your passions your longing which obviously involves thinking but we're talking about this emotional desirous aspect of your life. Keep your heart with what? In my Bible here it says, with all diligence, guard your heart, other translations say. Guard it really carefully. Why? Because it says, for out of it springs the issues of life. Our heart is like a well. And if the well is poisoned... You know that movie Toy Story? Somebody poisoned the watering hole. If if there's poison at the well of your heart, poison is going to spread to every other part of who you are. So that's why the, the author of the proverb here says, guard your heart, keep it. Because the issues of life, every aspect of your life flows out of your heart. We could also... Look and think about Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Talking about a guy who says, hey, eat a lot, drink a lot, all these things, but in his heart he's thinking the exact opposite. Our hearts are where our true identity stems from. uh, Who we become as people. So we're told to guard our hearts. Be careful what we allow in our hearts. I love what St. Augustine said, he said, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is what? Is restless until it finds its rest in you. Augustine realized that we are creatures who long, we are creatures who love, and we've got this deep-seated passion that, whether we realize it or not, is drawing us to God. But many people don't realize that, or, or they substitute God for other things, and so they pursue passions, because they're really trying to pursue God, but they haven't quite figured it out. And that's in line with what David said in Psalm 42. He said, As the deer longs, or that King James word, panteth for the streams of water. Has has anyone heard a deer pant before? I haven't either, but you can imagine a dog, right? Okay. As the dog, as the deer... Longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. David recognized our hearts are passionate things that have longings and desires, and ultimately they're fulfilled in God. But many times we try and substitute other things for God. Because of this, our lives become oriented with the things that we love, the things that we long for. There was a student out at NBA several years ago that longed to become a player in the National Basketball Association. He wanted to play professionally in the NBA. And so because that was the consuming passion of his heart and life, he spent countless hours in the gymnasium shooting shots, working on his jump shots, practicing his dribbling, taking a ball between classes, dribbling it through his legs, around his back as he would go to class. He would focus on this goal because it was his consuming passion in life. He would watch videos. He would study the moves of the great people. And that was what he was about because that's what his heart wanted. And this is the part of the story where you expect me to say, and his name is Michael Jordan. But that's not the case. He got different passions later on. Uh, So he didn't end up going that direction. But because he had a passion, a longing, a love in his life, that dictated what his activities, how he used his spare time, what he thought about, what he watched, what he listened to, all those things were centered on that passion and that love. Uh, This is an awesome quote from a guy named James K. A. Smith. Um, He had this to say, he said, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. It's impossible. All of us love something whether we realize it or not. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. You can maybe guess where I got uh, the title of the sermon. Actually, he's influenced a lot of what we're talking about today. But it's founded ultimately in God's Word. So we can't not love. The question is, what are we going to to love. Who are we going to love? How are we going to shape and orient our lives? Has anyone heard of Blaise Pascal? Blaise Pascal, he wrote this fascinating thing called The Wager, where he basically was saying, "Uh, it's worth it to bet your life on God and the reality of God, and the rewards are too great, the risk is minimal, It just makes sense to follow after God. But notice what he said here. Blaise Pascal, he said, you have to wager. In other words, you have to commit your life to something. It's not up to you. You are already committed. In other words, your life is going to take you somewhere. You can't not go somewhere with your life. You can't not end up somewhere because you're on a path. But you get to pick what path you choose And in the context of today's sermon, we get to choose where our heart's affections lie. We get to choose where we go, who we love, what we love. But you can't not love, and you can't not end up somewhere. And today we see that we become what we love because what we love sets the direction for our heart. All of us are heading towards a version of a kingdom, The kingdom that we love, it just depends on which kingdom you want. Because where you want to go is where you get ultimately. But another important thing for us to realize is it's not just what you love, but what we love ends up being what we worship. We worship the things that we love in our life. Notice what Martin Luther said. He said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your what? You're God. We can be idolaters who come to church every Sabbath because we have other gods, idols set up in our heart. We come here because this is our passion, this is like our pastime, this is what we're used to doing, but in our hearts, we have other things that we've set up. Maybe it's materialism, maybe it's the love of this or of that, but all of us have a love in our life, whether we realize it or not, even if we come faithfully to church every week. There was this guy named David Foster Wallace, and he was an author, and he spoke at a graduation at Kenyon College, and he said something very, very profound in his speech, and I've put it on the screen. He said, but here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism, and you'll see what he means here. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. All of us are worshiping, whether we realize it or not. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Your life is worshiping something, but you get to choose what? If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If money is your God, you're going to be chasing money your entire life, but you'll never have quite enough. That's what Howard Hughes, one of the richest guys in his time, was asked. They said, hey, Howard, how much money is enough? He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. All of us are worshiping something. It's the truth, he says. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. If you go through the checkout stand, and you pick up those magazines with all the the artificially beautiful people and and photoshopped pictures, and that becomes your focus and your worship, then you're always going to feel insufficient. Because that becomes what you love, what you're worshiping. He says, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. What do we want to worship? He continues, on one level, we all know this stuff already. The whole trick is keeping the truth in front, up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What are we worshiping? He says all these other things, they're going to eat you alive because they'll never be enough. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is, that, is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. So we may be worshiping these things and not even realize it. That's the scariest thing about this whole deal. They're default settings, he continues. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. We find ourselves worshiping these things without even realizing it. A friend of mine just had to totally delete Facebook, had to get off of Facebook because they realized that every time they saw the pictures of other people doing all these other things, and they saw how they looked, and they always felt insufficient. And they couldn't keep up. And they realized, I've got to get that out of my life. This is an idol that's been in my life. I've got to get rid of it. All of us, whether we realize it or not, are worshiping something. So we got to be careful what we love. We have to be careful what we long for, what we desire in life. But what if you don't love what you think you do? Because a lot of us, if you say, well, what do you love? We say, well, I love Jesus. I love God. I love the Bible. But a lot of us say that because we know that that's what we're supposed to say, Right? It's like the boy in grade school, or actually he was in like a a church program. They held up a little squiggly uh, line, or it was a piece of paper with squiggly lines on it, and he was supposed to guess what it looked like to him. It didn't look like anything in particular. You just look at it and you say what it looks like. And he said, well, to me it looks like a squirrel, but I know the answer has to be Jesus. (laughs) Because he was trained, he knew. Who do you love? What do you love? Jesus. What does this look like? Jesus. You know, that's the answer. We're programmed. But what if Jesus isn't ultimately what we love the most? What do we do? As Christians, uh, we need to find answers to these questions. And the way to tell where your loves lie is by looking at your habits. The reality is your deepest desire is the one that's manifested by your daily choices. The little things that you do every single day. They either affirm that Jesus is the greatest desire of your heart or they point to other things. How do you spend your money? How do you spend your free time? How do you sp- what do you like to think about? What do you like to do? And this is not wrong to have hobbies and passions and interests in life. Of course not. But ultimately, these things will tell you who's on the throne of your heart. Who do you love the most? Do we really want to be made well by Jesus? Do we really want to be set free from sin? Or do we just love the sin more? You know, Sarah could tell you in physical therapy, there are people who go there, and she doesn't tell me names, uh, even if you were to attend. I wouldn't know if you were seeing her. But... She will tell you that there are people who come to her that want to be made well, right? I just had surgery on my knee. I want my knee to to work better. So she works with them. She gives them advice and instructions, and they do all sorts of things. And then some of them reach a point where they just don't get any better. And the reason is not because it's impossible to get well, but because they're unwilling to do the exercises and the stretches and the hard work that they need to to really get better. Is that accurate? Yeah. So we have to ask ourselves as Christians, do we really wanna be set free from sin? We, We crawl away from sin hoping it'll catch up to us? Do we really wanna be made well? What is our real and deepest heart's desire? But if we find out that there are other things we long for more than Jesus, more than victory, more than heaven, what do we do? You know, some people are tempted to say change is impossible. They say, hey, my dad has a temper. I have a temper. Nothing you can do about it. It's just who I am. I get angry, but, but my grandpa got angry. I get, my dad gets angry. I get angry. That's just how I am. I'm an angry person at times, right? Or listen, it runs in my family. Alcoholism, it runs in my family. I would like to stop, but I can't. I don't have a choice. It's in my DNA, my genetic makeup. Well, it's true that there are factors based on how you were brought up, how your genetics are put together. Well, it's true that there are external factors it's always also true that we have a choice in our life. It's true that it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there is no temptation such as common a man that we can't escape, that God won't provide a way out. It doesn't say unless you're genetically or socially or emotionally predispositioned to. We may have to work harder in certain areas, but God can change who we are. Amen? Paul said, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. God wants to change who we are. We are what we love because what we love points us in the direction that we want to go and we do the things that lead to the things that we love. But if our loves and longings and desires are in the wrong place, the good news this morning is God can change that. God can and he will change it if we are willing. And next week's sermon, we're going to dive into that more specifically. But I want to go to one final passage. Open up to the New Testament book of Colossians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Didn't put this one on the screen. No shortcuts for this one. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, Paul says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. That ties into our prayer theme for this week, doesn't it? Verse 14. But above all these things, you must put on what? Love, charity, which is the bond of perfection. Now, let me ask you something. If I were to say uh, to you, put on your shoes, let's go, um, what does that imply in what I'm saying? We're We're going outside, or what'd you say? Need to wear shoes. Need to wear shoes. Okay, so is it reasonable to assume if I say put on your shoes that your shoes aren't currently on? Right? Okay. Sarah would never say to me, hey John, put on your suit for church if I'm already wearing it. Unless she was in the other room and couldn't see me, right? So when the Apostle Paul says to us we need to put on and then has a big long list of these characteristics, that means that we don't necessarily have them in our lives already or to the amount that God wants them to be there, right? So he is telling us directly, it's possible to put on these things, this long list of good things, and the last one, above all, love. That means that change, character transformation, is possible. Not only is it possible, it is expected of us put these things on. These are what we call virtues. Moral habits. And habits take time to build. Right? We've got our first nature and we have our second nature. If I say to you, hey, can you ride a bike? And you say, yeah, riding a bike is like second nature to me. What does that mean? Does that mean you have to constantly be thinking about what you're doing and it's really difficult and it's super hard to ride a bike? No, it means... It's second nature. I don't even have to think about it anymore because I've practiced and it has become a part of who I am. Right? So the first nature is when we have to constantly focus on what's going on. And when you're trying to build a new habit in your life, it takes focus. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of Holy Spirit work in our life to make that change happen. But as we continue to grow, There are always things we need the Holy Spirit for, and we always need him sustaining us in these things, but as we begin to grow in our characters, they start to become more second nature than first nature. Does that make sense? Change is possible, not on our own power, only through the power of the Holy Spirit, but just because your dad had a temper and you have a temper, or just because you have genetic tendencies towards temptations doesn't mean that you need to make those same choices yourself. God wants us to grow. We are what we love, but what we love can change through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? I have a friend who came from England. Lives here in the States now, but when he first visited, I'm not talking about Simon. It's a different friend. (laughs) Okay. He came here and he went to the mall and he was hungry so he got one of those little like things of bread with salt and butter on it that's formed into a shape, pretzel, right? Got one of those pretzels and he ate it and you know what he thought? This is way too salty. How can anybody eat this? This is horribly salty because he was used to how things were seasoned in England. So now he lives here, he's an American citizen, and guess what? If he goes to the mall, get me one of those pretzels. Ah, am no, no, no. I love it. Maybe you can relate. Maybe it's not with sodium, but maybe there were things, did you ever have a vegetable or a fruit that you didn't like, that now you do like? Has that happened to you? I didn't like tomatoes when I was a kid. I like tomatoes now, unless they're the nasty ones from the store that aren't good. You know, we're talking about good tomatoes. The very fact that our taste buds can change, the things that we used to not like can become the things that we like and we love illustrates that the same thing can happen in our hearts. Tristan talked about that ice cream and how when you start eating healthier things, pretty soon you start to enjoy those smoothies more. Some of the kids were a little skeptical when you put that spinach in. But you know what? When you start to eat healthfully, after a while your taste buds start to crave the healthier things. And then you have the less healthy, and maybe you enjoy it from time to time, but a lot of times what happens is you taste it and you're like, whoa, that's just way too sweet, or that's way too salty, or that's way too fatty for me. I don't like that anymore. We are what we love, but what we love can change. What we love is what we worship, what we long for. And maybe we're worshiping things that are not God, but that can change, and we can become aware, and we can ask God to help us. A few years ago, some friends of mine, really good friends, were backpacking. And it was in the spring, and there was still snow where they were backpacking. It was out at Carson River Hot Springs. And it's like a 10-mile hike there, or you can drive there when the river is low enough and you have enough clearance in your vehicle because you got to drive through the river. Uh, So at that time of the year nobody else was there. They hike in, they spend a couple of days enjoying the hot springs all to themselves. It was an awesome time, but then came the time to pack up and leave. So they got their backpacks on, the three of them headed out, and they started hiking. A few hours later, They're coming to what hopefully was going to be the car, and things start to look familiar, which is good, or in their case, it's bad, because it looked a lot like where they had started that morning. And one of them said, wouldn't it be horrible if we ended back up at the hot springs? And pretty soon they looked, and there was the hot springs they had started from three hours or whatever earlier that day. They had somehow hiked in a complete circle without even knowing it. They were used to the outdoors, but somehow that day their internal compass was miscalibrated, and they were just going in circles. A lot of us have been Christians for a long time, and we're trying to make growth in our Christian experience, but if our hearts aren't calibrated properly, we're just going to be going in circles. The solution is a new heart, a transformed heart and mind. The solution is what Jesus wants to give us. You are what you love, and what you love can change to the best love and the greatest love. So the question I have as we end is, are you willing to let Jesus change, alter, improve what you love? Let's pray. Dear Father, we love you but we don't even realize the depth of what we're saying when we say that because uh, there's just so much more for us to learn and experience and know. But today we've said yes. Lord, we're willing to let you keep working. When we get to heaven, we want to feel welcome and at home there instead of culture shock and wishing we were back on the sinful world. So Lord, now's the time. We want you to work in our hearts, work in our loves, our longings, our desires. Shape them, mold them, and make them after yours. We know when we get to heaven, we won't look back and regret the work you've done in our hearts. So we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.